0: Wonderful to see all of you here tonight. We are grateful to the Lord that He has given us in the church calendar, probably along with Christmas, one of the greatest days, weeks of the church calendar year, and that is Good Friday and Resurrection Day. We are grateful that the Lord has gathered us together and as I pondered what I might bring to us by way of preparation for the Lord's Supper, I thought that there would be an opportunity for us to talk, of course, about the cross of Jesus. And the way I want to speak of the cross of Jesus tonight, this being, of course, Good Friday, which is why the church commemorates the idea of the death of the Son of God on that Good Friday, there is a sense in which, of course, all of us benefit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that you acknowledge that you are a sinner, that I am lost without Christ, I'm lost in my sin, you know that this Friday evening, each year that it comes around, is an opportunity not just to celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, but also to meditate upon the cross of Jesus. And tonight I want us to meditate upon the cross of Jesus in this sense. The cross of Jesus is certainly something for which we as believers rejoice in because it is our salvation. But have you ever thought about the idea that in the agreement between the Father and the Son, for the Son to come to this earth, to be fully man, as he is, of course, fully God, to live a perfect life, to die an ignoble death on a cross, and in doing so, fully and completely and wonderfully satisfying the Father. Oh, it's a, it's a wonderful thing for us, this cross of Jesus. And it truly does give us the answer to our sin problem. And oh... To be sure, it is to our great satisfaction that Jesus died for us. But I want you to think about it in this way also, that it is of the supreme and perfect and eternal satisfaction, this death of Christ on the cross to God the Father. He's completely satisfied. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And one of the New Testament terms that is used to depict an aspect of this Saviorhood of Christ is that concept of satisfaction. Now, there's there's a big term that's used four times in the New Testament to speak of this satisfaction, and it is the word propitiation. Propitiation. That may be a new word to some of you, but I could say many things about it. We could get into a theological discussion about this concept of propitiation and all that it involves. But I think we could reduce it down in our time of meditation. This won't be a full sermon, just a preparation and introduction to our time in the Lord's Supper as we celebrate it together. And it actually wonderfully, this concept of propitiation, or maybe a word that's so much more familiar to us and that we understand very well in our English context, and that is satisfaction. Satisfaction. I think that satisfaction fits very, very well this idea of propitiation, in the series that we've been doing over the last Lord's Days that we've been together with that series entitled The Fear of Man Versus the Fear of God. As I was going through some of these texts that speak of the fear of man versus the fear of God, I noticed in four of those texts when the idea of fear is being talked about, That somewhere lurking, lingering in the greater context of those four places where the fear of God or the fear of man is being discussed, that the word propitiation is being used. you want to see where they are? Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. As we prepare our hearts for communion, we're going, of course, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but we're also going to sing. We're going to continue to sing together. And as we do and as we prepare our hearts for the singing and for the praise and for our prayers and for the Lord's Supper, if you and I think about the fear of God, for instance, and the truth that you and I must have a fear of God. Fear not in the sense of being afraid, but fear in the sense of revering God, lauding him, praising him, magnifying him. Romans 3 is one of those texts that I showed you in that series, and if you remember in Romans 3.9, the Bible says, what then? Are we Jews any better off that is, better off than the Gentiles. Paul says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul says about humanity, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps or snakes is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. And then this concluding statement, as shocking and as important as it is, Romans 3.18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God before the eyes of all men and all women in the world. We come out of the womb, and we perfect the art, if we may say so, of revering ourselves, lauding ourselves. You say, well, I don't do that. I don't worship myself. Well, if we probably were honest and we looked in our hearts and if we were injured by someone verbally or in some other way, or if something that we desperately want doesn't come our way, if we are discouraged that our needs aren't being met, or so we think, and on and on the list goes. All of those things, when they don't come to us, are because we want to be in charge, and we want all of our needs met, and we believe in one sense that we even if we would try to suppress the truth, want to be the center of our own universe. It's the truth of what happens in the world because we're born into sin. And Paul elicits in verses 11 to 18 the very truth of it. Ending with that statement, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no revere of God before their eyes. Now, you remember that when we studied this passage, I read that very statement, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And sure enough, lurking right there, very close at hand to the idea of people not revering God, is the solution to revere him, to honor him to glorify Him. What is that solution? Look at what it says in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, that is God's rightness. God's rightness in terms of His character and God's rightness when He condemns sinners. The righteousness of God, and notice it says, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You and I are given, gifted, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For everyone who believes, for everyone who puts their trust, their confidence, their whole life, their whole world, all of their expectations, yes, even their satisfactions. In Jesus Christ, through faith, by faith, the righteousness of God comes to us. He goes on to say, does Paul, for there is no distinction, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned, everybody in the world, everybody coming out of the womb, everyone, and and they live and grow and become adults sinning for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one single person save Jesus himself who could ever maintain the idea, let alone the boast, that they've never sinned. In fact, if they were truly honest with themselves, they would acknowledge, I sin every day. In thought, word, or deed. In fact, I sin every hour. And on especially bad days, I sin just about every minute. Thought, word, or deed. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But for those who through faith in Jesus Christ, the believers, verse 24 says, we're justified by his grace as a gift. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. We don't deserve it. And it is gifted to us, this grace of justification, the Bible says here in verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now that's a grand word there, redemption, redemption. Buying us back from the marketplace of sin. Oh, but as I said, lurking in the shadows of this idea of there is no fear of God before their eyes, Romans 3.18 verse 25 shows us whom God put forward, this Jesus, this redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now that's a big word. There's a lot of theological freight to that word, but you could boil it all down to this God put Christ forward to us, showing him to all who believe, all who would believe, all who would place their faith in him, that God gave you Christ and his dying for you, God the Father would be satisfied satisfied, satisfied with the perfect redemption and satisfaction of the blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul says it this way, to be received by faith. And and what was that to show? What was that to, to show to the world? And what was that to show to believers particularly? He goes on to say, this was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness, that is, when Christ came, as he began to live his life, he was born to Mary, he lived a perfect life, he died that cruel death at the present time, so that he, Jesus, might be the just and justifier, excuse me, the Father, who might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God could justly give you and me the satisfaction of his son because there was a requirement for the son to live in perfect obedience to the law of God, which he did, and the son giving up his life in violent sacrificial death, which he did, so that you and I could be satisfied when we place our faith in Christ, that we're on our way to heaven and that God the Father himself would be satisfied because atonement has been made. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. That's why the the bread emblematically being his body given in violent sacrificial death for you and me so that God the Father would be satisfied with such a death, the only person ever proffered in the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the only one who could be God's satisfaction. He lived a perfect life. He died this sacrificial death, this atoning death. A lot of people die. There have even been people who have chosen to give their lives up for the sake of protecting other lives. But their death wasn't an atoning death for them. might have been a protecting one, but it wasn't an atoning death, and it certainly wasn't a perfect death because sinners who die on behalf of others, that's valiant, but not enough to be the satisfaction of the Father. Only Jesus. And you know what he restores to us? He restores to us the fear of God before our eyes. We're made in the image of God. And because we're made in the image of God, we have the opportunity then to see this marred image restored. No longer the ugly sin of our lives that God looks at. When he looks at us now as believers in Jesus Christ, he sees his Son. He sees his only son, and he is most satisfied with the redemption of his son. Now, I'm so grateful, and I know you are too. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you want God the Father to look upon Christ and his redemption of you and me because we don't want the Father looking at us. There's nothing inherent within us. There's nothing noteworthy within us. There's nothing redemptive within us. There's nothing about us that commends us to the Father. Oh, yes, we are made in his perfect image, but that image has been marred by sin. It happens even at the moment of our birth, and it goes all the way through to our death, and it's a sad reality. No wonder the plan of the Father to restore the fear of God before the eyes of multiplied millions is when Jesus Christ died on that cross as a satisfaction. That's what the word propitiation means, a satisfaction. God is satisfied. And so you see where fear, the fear of God, and propitiation is rendered together in this text. There's another one. Go over to Hebrews chapter 2. You remember, we spent a long time in Hebrews chapter 2. And in Hebrews chapter 2, we see it again listed so wonderfully. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since, therefore, the children, that is the children of man, mankind, just talking about humanity, therefore, humanity share in flesh and blood. That just means we're all human, He, speaking of Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He also is human. That through death, that is, through his death on the cross, he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death... Were subject to lifelong slavery. So, the Bible tells us here very clearly that one of the works of the Son is to come to this earth, take on humanity, partake as the children of men, flesh and blood, so that as a man, he might die in order to destroy the one who has the power of death. And as I mentioned to you, he is the one who comes to destroy the destroyer. Satan's all about destruction, murder, lies, vehemence, disorder, corruption. That's his stock in trade. That's what he's all about. And the Son of God came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And, and who is this? Who is this who has through their fear of death been subject to lifelong slavery? I tell you, it's every man, woman, and child in the world. That's the whole point of this passage. Everybody's in fear of death. Instead of the fear of God being before their eyes, They know nothing except the fear of death and it has subjugated them to lifelong slavery to such fear. But there's an answer. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps. No, Jesus helps us, the others who are flesh and blood and he helps particularly, it says here, the offspring of Abraham. Who is that? It's not just Jews who believe in their Messiah, it's both Jews and Gentiles who've placed their faith in Messiah. Both Jew and Gentile. He helps. Well, how does he help them? Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. That's another way of saying he had to become human just like they. In every respect, it says, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make what? What does it say? Propitiation. Satisfaction for the sins of the people. Yes, the ugly truth is that we fear man, we fear death, there is no fear of God before our eyes. As unbelievers, we are all lost in the slavery, the subjected slavery of death all our life long by the one who holds us in the power of death, that is the devil, And Jesus comes along to destroy the destroyer and to make satisfaction for the sins of the people. What people? The offspring of Abraham. That's very clear. He helps the offspring of Abraham. How does he help them? He becomes their merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make satisfaction for their sins. And he himself has suffered when tempted, yet he is able to help those who are being tempted. What a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is, this is a Savior who left the glories of heaven so that he might come and be a man among men who would die that violent sacrificial death. And through his perfect obedience become the great merciful high priest who when he was tempted, never sinned, lived that perfect life so that he is able to help those who are being tempted. And those who are being tempted, everyone in this room, Everyone in the world tempted and falling every day to such temptation. It's like the person once said, I think I can withstand anything except temptation, of course. Oh, we think we can. We think we can forestall multitudes of sins. And perhaps by the grace of God, we don't do all that we could do in our flesh. But that's not because of our effort it's because of god and his grace and his kindness and what he's done is that he's made a satisfaction for those who've been in lifelong bondage there's another passage first john chapter 3 and first john chapter 3 if you don't have any issue with the the chapter and verses that are not in the original, then you go back to chapter 2 and you find out that propitiation is being used here and it's tied in, in this book, to the idea of the fear of punishment. Look at chapter 2. My little children, chapter 2, verse 1, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That is that you may not sin in the habitual sense, in the patterned sense, in the very constitution of your life. Uh, These children that he's referring to are spiritual children, they're believers, they're Christians. And he says, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and of course, even Christians, those who know Christ, those who are genuinely saved, We are still going to sin. And when we do, we have an advocate with the Father. And who is He? Jesus Christ the righteous. And then He tells us in verse 2 He is the propitiation for our sins, He is the satisfaction. For all the sins that we have ever committed and are committing and will commit, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he's not just our satisfaction for our sins, he's also the perfect satisfaction of the Father. The Father being completely satisfied with the life and cross work of Jesus the Christ. You and I know that because the scripture on a couple of different occasions in the New Testament says this, and God the Father spoke from heaven, and He says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am what? Well pleased. He's, that is Jesus, the perfect satisfaction of the Father. Perfectly. The perfect Son. Oh, yes, when he was young and he would go to the temple and he would converse with the religious leaders. And Luke 2.42 and Luke 2.52 say that he continued as a young man to grow in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. Yes, he grew, but he was growing in his perfect knowledge and his growing as a young man into adulthood so that he could embark on his public ministry. So through that growing and through that knowledge, he would in fact continue to see the ongoing plan and purpose of God. And he did. And he lived that perfect life and he died that violent death so that he could be the satisfaction for our sins. And not just for general sins, but for particular sins. And look at chapter 3, and I'll tell you one of those particular sins. This is, this is what's happening in chapter 3. It's talking about righteousness and unrighteousness. It's talking about love and hate, and it's talking about murder and those who would never murder in their heart or outwardly, these believers... and by the way he's got a much better voice than I do here's what it says 1 John 3 4 everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness sin is lawlessness you know that he appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, again, talking about spiritual children, the the children of God, believers in Christ, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And notice the contrast, verse 8: whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then again, just like Hebrews 2, it gives us a statement of part of the works of the Son as he came into the world. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There he is again, destroying the destroyer. And in this case, what kind of works of the devil Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. You see, if you're a Christian, if you've been born of God, if you've been spiritually raised and your faith in Christ has given you eternal life, verse 10 says, it's evident that you're righteous and it's evident that you are the children of God. And it's evident by its opposite, who are the children of the devil. Verse 10 goes on to say, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Do you see the practical outworking of this? And of course, it even mentions in verse 12, Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Yes, this is, this is what we've been talking about in this series. This is This is the fear of man versus the fear of God. Cain feared man. He revered himself. And the true believer, like Abel, his brother, whom he slew, was righteous. He loved God. God gave him grace. He loved his brother, and his brother in return slew him because Cain was of the evil one. Isn't it? So wonderful that this passage says in verse 16, By this we know love, that he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us. You say, well, I don't see propitiation there. Oh, it's in chapter 4. Look, look at verse 10. This whole preamble of Cain and his disobedience and his murderous hatred and and by contrast Abel and his love and his righteousness, the only reason that Abel could be that way, the only reason that Abel was righteous and and unlike his brother in every sense is because in 1 John 4.10 it says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. That means he took the initiative and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There it is again. you see these four passages? All of them talking about fear. Either the fear of man or rightly the fear of God. And here it is. The fear of God, the love of God, the revering of God, the magnifying of God is our response because of the propitiation of the Son on our behalf. You say, well, where is it talking about fear here? Look at verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear. And then he explains what fear he's referring to. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. You know what he's saying? You can see this storyline through the Bible from Cain onwards. This is the, this is the fear of man. That's, that's Cain revering himself Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, a trap, but those who trust in the Lord savingly, those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, they're secure, they're safe. That's why even when Abel was slain by his brother, he was still safe. Though he died physically, he was safe in the arms of God. And that fear, fear of man brings a fear of lifelong subjugation to, to slavery, this, this slavery that, that so defeats us. What kind of slavery is that? The, the fear of death. And the fear of death then gives way, according to 1 John 4, to the fear of punishment upon death. You see how the destroyer wants to destroy us? He wants to, like the Bible says, uh, bring us to a place of revering ourselves, to have the fear or revere of man, which then, of course, brings us to the reality that we are subjected to lifelong slavery, this fear of death, and then we're subjected, of course, to the fear of what's going to happen to us when we die, which is the fear of punishment. And every place we see it, we see that there's a solution. And what is that solution? that we have our sins forgiven by the cross of Jesus Christ who then satisfies the demand for divine justice by the Father dying for sinners like us so that we don't have to fear man. We don't have to fear death and we don't have to fear the punishment that comes upon death. I don't know about you but I don't lay awake at night saying I fear man and death and punishment. And the reason why is because Jesus Christ has satisfied the demands of divine justice by living a perfect life and dying an atoning death so that not only am I forgiven and I see all of this fear dispelled but chiefly and more importantly than what I think is what God the Father thinks, and he was completely and wholly satisfied. Have you ever thought about that? That the atonement of Jesus Christ was not just so that you and I could be forgiven and get into heaven? Not only that Jesus would be the one who destroys the the destroyer, the fear of man and the fear of death and the fear of punishment on death, all those things are true. But the most important element here is not what happens to us. Glory though that is. The most important thing is that the Father himself is satisfied. He has received the satisfaction brought by the Son so that He is appeased. As we now prepare for the singing and then the Lord's Supper, I could probably, I could probably say it like this. The Puritans were wonderful at this. They said it this way. If the perfect life of Jesus Christ, his utter holiness without sin, and the atoning death of Christ, that violent sacrificial act in which he died on Calvary's tree, if in fact those things are true and real and they occurred and they did, then that means that the Father is perfectly and completely satisfied with his son in every way. And the Puritans would go on to say, now if that's true, and it is, then let me ask you, why isn't he the ultimate and perfect and regular and daily satisfaction for you? That's a great question. You know, we fill our minds and our hearts with a lot of things that we presume are very satisfying. Whether we're talking about money, sex, power, prestige, friends, adulation, or even things like, I just want some level of peace or joy or some accomplishment. I I don't want a lot. I just want to be able to live each day of my life with some level of satisfaction. And sometimes that appears to be so fleeting. Sometimes I don't seem to get what I want. I, I don't seem to have what I'm presuming I need, and therefore my desires are not realized, and I'm discouraged, and it seems as though those things are so fleeting in this life, and I want it, and I want it so desperately, and if I don't have it, I become not only discouraged, but I become a demanding person for that which will give me all that I would want in the desires of my heart. Well, I submit to you that if Jesus Christ is the perfect satisfaction of the Father, then there is nothing in this world that could be anything other than the better sacrifice than that for us. The satisfying sacrifice of Jesus Christ Who gave his life for you and for me? That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. The bread and the cup, the body and the blood. And if the Father is completely satisfied, nothing else to be done, no other way for the Son to have responded, He did everything perfectly. And the Father says, I am well pleased then why don't we find our satisfaction in the well-pleasing Son? I mean, I asked myself that question today before standing up here before you. What is it about me that I don't find lasting and regular and habitual satisfaction in the son who is so well-pleasing to the father that I have to look to any lesser pursuits. Prestige, power, money, the allurements of the world, the things that I think make me happy, the things that I presume would bring me joy, none of those things are ultimately satisfying. We know that. We we know that intellectually. We say, if the Lord would just give me a child, if the Lord would just give me obedient children, if if the Lord would just give me that job, if if the Lord would just fulfill my desires for that friendship, if if the Lord would just give me that, that monetary Need that I have, if the Lord would just come to me and, and, and tell me that, that I'm doing a good work or, or that I'm what I need to be and I find myself allured by the world and its temptations and, and I find that I just don't seem to have the satisfaction that I otherwise should have and desperately desire. Well, look, my friends. If God the Father the God of the universe, Yahweh God himself, is perfectly pleased with the Son. Can I say that there's anything else but the Son that I'm pursuing that would please me? I don't think so. You know what that is? That's the destroyer doing more of his destructive work to try to make us think that there is something else in this world that is a greater satisfaction than the Son of God. It's a lie. It's a lie right out of the pit. There is no greater propitiation. And that's Christ in his redemptive sense, and there is no greater sanctification satisfaction for the believer than loving Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for you and for me. If that's the satisfaction of the Father, I think I too can be satisfied. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, this this is the satisfaction that we're looking for. We We don't have to look elsewhere. We don't have to look for satisfaction in people. We don't have to look for satisfaction in money. We don't have to look for satisfaction in worldly acquirements. We don't have to look for a house and a car. We don't have to look for great relationships where people are meeting all my needs. We don't have to look for children. We don't have to look for relationships of any kind. We don't have to look for the kinds of financial securities that would make us have ease in our lives, if those are the things that we're trying to have satisfy us to a greater degree than the satisfaction of the Son of God. Oh, Father, don't let me sin by seeing the satisfaction in any other thing than the Lord Jesus Christ, your own perfect satisfaction. If you're pleased with him, may I be ultimately pleased with him as well. Thank you, Father. May we sing to your glory. Amen.
1: Would you please stand as we sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strange dim in the light of His glory and grace. Turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embrace. There the Son of God gave his life for us, and our measureless dead was erased. Jesus, to you we lift our eyes. Jesus, our glory and our pride. We adore you, behold you, our Savior ever true. Oh, Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. Turn your eyes to the morning and see Christ the lion awake what a glorious start fear of death is gone for we carry his life in our veins jesus see you we lift our eyes jesus our glory and our prize we adore you Behold you, our Saviour, ever true. Oh, Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. Turn your eyes to the heavens. Our King will return for his own Every knee will bow Every tongue will shout All glory to Jesus alone Jesus, to you we lift our eyes Jesus, our glory and our prize, we adore you, behold you, our Savior ever true. Oh, Jesus, we turn our eyes to you, Jesus, to you we lift our eyes. Jesus, our glory and our prize. We adore you, behold you, our Savior ever true. Oh Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. And oh Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. Fountain filled with blood Drawn from Emmanuel's veins And sinners plunged beneath that flood Lose all their guilty stains Lose all their guilty stains Lose all their guilty stains And sinners plunged beneath that flood Lose all their guilty stains the dying thief rejoice to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, and there may I, though vile let wash washed all my sins away. And wash all my sins away washed all my sins away. And there may I, though vile as He, wash all my sins away. Dear dying Lamb, Thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Till all the ransomed church of God Be safe to sin no more Be safe to sin no more Be safe to sin no more Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more.
0: You would take your seat and take these elements if you have not taken communion this way in these uh, unprecedented times that we have. We have both the bread and the cup uh, safely and securely wrapped here for you. If you would take the top wrap and displace it, and you see the, the bread, the emblematic Principle of Christ's body. You know, I was thinking about this satisfaction of the Father. And I was thinking about people maybe arguing with the Lord in their hearts. But Lord, I, I know you've given me this and I know you've given me that, but God, what about this and I don't have that and I desperately want it, I'm I'm lonely, I need a companion, I need relationship, or I need a better job, or I need more money, or whatever the case may be. And if in fact the satisfaction of Christ on the cross by giving his body to be sacrificed for us is the full and complete satisfaction of the Father. Doesn't Matthew 6 tell us, I'll meet all your other needs? Food, shelter, clothing, I'll meet all your needs. I want you to find your satisfaction chiefly and only in Christ. It reminded me of Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You know, if you say that to your Savior, both the way he lived his life, as a pattern to follow for you and for me, even though we stumble and fall a million times, and if you see what he did on the cross as the full satisfaction and the well-pleasing of the Father, wouldn't we assume then that all of our needs are going to be met? We're tempted to say, I suppose, I want that. I certainly need it. But I struggle because when I don't see it at my own beck and call, then maybe I doubt. Maybe I doubt the goodness of God. Maybe I doubt that he has all of my needs in tow. But if the father says, I'm so satisfied with my son And in Romans 8, it says, if I have given the Son to you through His cross, will I not freely along with Him give you all other things? It's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If I've already given you the cross, if I've already given you full satisfaction of the payment for your sins and full and free forgiveness by grace, aren't you... Aren't you going to be content with lesser things? Your car, your job, your health, your friendships. Aren't you going to be content with those? You've already been given the greatest gift. See, that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This This is the body, the Bible says, given to us. Not this, but what it emblematically represents. It's the body of Jesus Christ given for us, the greatest gift. And if so, and if you're a believer, you can partake of this with us right now. Let's do it together. Now, I know that what you just put in your mouth tastes like styrofoam. (laughs) I'll just be the first to admit it publicly which is another taste of what we hope will come in short order when we can participate in the Lord's Supper with real bread (laughs) and real juice. Take the juice that's in the bottom portion of your cup and now tear off the final tab. When I said that the Son was the complete satisfaction of the Father, do you know that in Colossians chapter 3, the Bible says these words, If then you have been raised with Christ, which all believers are, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Seated at the right hand means that Christ accomplished all the things that the Father had given him to do, and he magisterially conducted his work on earth to be now fully finished in the work of redemption so that he could be the full satisfaction of the Father at his right hand, the hand of power, the hand of accomplishment, What are we to do with that? Verse 2 says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You know, every time we talk about the concept of, yes, Lord, but I need, but but you see, you don't understand, God, there's this problem. Oh, yes, I know you've given me this, but what I really need is, you fill in the blank. And you and I at times, myself most chiefly, barter. Well, what about this? And don't you think I need that? And, And isn't this more fulfilling? Isn't this better? And I think what I'm doing and what you may be doing if you do the same thing is we're not setting our minds on the things that are above, the satisfaction of the Son by the Father. I should be setting my mind on the things that are above and not on the things that are on the earth because verse three says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You pick up on that phrase, Christ who is your life. And there's another phrase in chapter three at the end of this section It starts out with Christ who is your life and it ends this way. Christ is all and in all. That phrase, Christ is all. Christ is preeminent. Christ is satisfaction. Christ is sufficient. When you think of all of your needs, when you're bartering with God in your mind and heart, Remember this, Christ is all you need. Christ is your life. Christ is your full sufficiency. Christ is your complete satisfaction. And he's the satisfaction of the Father. And I, like the Father, am so well pleased. Let's do the blood together in this juice. Oh, Heavenly Father, this is, the, this is the emblematic nature of why we regularly celebrate the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, because it's a reminder every time we do it that Jesus Christ is the full and complete satisfaction of the redemptive work of On our behalf. He is our all in all. He is our complete sufficiency. He is our total satisfaction. He's not just our propitiation in our redemption, but even in our sanctification, even in our ongoing battle against sin, we must see him as our all in all, our life. Lord, don't let us settle for lesser things. Don't let us pander after things that don't last, that aren't ultimately fulfilling, and that will fade with the passing of this world. Let us be fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. If you've given him to us in sacrificial death, will you not with him Also, freely give us all things. Of course you will. That's the kind of God you are. And that is what we need to be reminded of every day. Father, thank you for this good Friday. Thank you for the death of Christ. Thank you for the, the body given for us. And thank you for the blood which is emblematic of the forgiveness of our sins and the establishment of the new covenant ratified with the shedding of the blood of the Son of God. Lord, as I hear these babies in our service, it reminds me of the work that we must do for them to be fully satisfied in Christ. O oh Lord, may you not see them as they continue to grow, looking at their relatives and seeing our half-hearted attempts of being satisfied with Christ. May they see the fullness of our satisfaction in Him. And may we be a light and a pattern so that they might see that we are as well pleased with Christ as you are, Heavenly Father. And may you be pleased to give us all that we need in the lesser things when we show you how satisfied in Christ we are. We thank you. We love you. We pray that you'd bring us back on the Lord's day so that we might celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, our Messiah. For we pray in his name. Amen.